Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nimity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal. Since the Shrimps 2 judgment came down on July 16th, the message has slowly sunk in that Europe is serious about looking at privacy and data protection through the glasses of fundamental rights protection. That was even reinforced by the Privacy International and Quadratur du Net cases published at the start of October. Any interference with the fundamental rights to privacy and data protection needs to be limited in time, scope, and content according to the courts, as well as necessary and proportionate. But what does it actually mean that privacy and data protection are fundamental rights? And is the universal fundamental rights approach compatible with a more economic rights approach taken in other jurisdictions? Our two guests today are perfectly suited to help Kay and I answer and understand these questions. Sophie Kwasny is the head of the Data Protection Unit of the Council of Europe, and as such, one of the key players when it comes to the so-called Convention 108 and 108+. Michael Donoghue is the Data Protection Officer for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Both Sophie and Michael have been involved in the international privacy community for many years, and I really miss catching up with either of them at events around the world. So having them on today's podcast certainly fills part of that gap. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal. And welcome to Serious Privacy. I'm absolutely delighted to have the two of you on the show uh, today. I was going to say this morning, but I think I'm the only one that it's morning for. And uh, really, really appreciate you coming on. I think this is going to be a wonderful conversation. And I'm anticipating that it's going to cover a lot of fundamentals that some people may not be aware of. But I think we're going to get into some complexities, too. So I'm looking forward to this. And with that being said, the unexpected question for today is, what is your biggest indulgence? So we'll go to ladies first. Sophie, what is your biggest indulgence? Kay, I think I will have a linguistic problem there. I'm not sure indulgence, the way you mean it, would be the way I understand it as a francophone. So can you find a synonym for me to make sure I have it? I was going to say, and actually when I asked the indulgence, I was going to say it could be interpreted different ways. It could be what do you spend the most money on? Or what's your favorite thing to do or to have? For example, my biggest indulgence is probably shoes. I probably have well over 200 pairs of shoes. And that's not counting cowboy boots and flip-flops. <laughs> I think Paul's biggest indulgence is cooking, but we'll see. I'm, I'm definitely on, uh, with you on this one, Kay. So this this is about my, my personal life, right? Yes. Yes your biggest I, indulgence is working and i'm sorry if that's your biggest indulgence yeah that that's a big fault too but indeed work <laughs> is a big part of, of, of my life no um my biggest indulgence so i will 
I will be in between the shallow handbag response and my family and friends. That's, I think, the most important indulgence. But then once again, I'm, I'm not sure of the meaning of the word, which from a Francophone perspective is very different to, to what I think you mean. <laughs> I had not thought of that. Apologies for that. But yes, I believe family would absolutely be considered an indulgence, especially nowadays where we don't get to see and touch our families as much as we would like to. So, Michael, what about you? Hmm. I'm well, like everyone locked down these days, I, I live not too far from the sea. And so I now take the indulgence of very long walks down by the sea with little regard for how it impacts the rest of my schedule or anybody else's schedule for that matter. I also probably have a weakness I contribute uh, to the bottom line of a small tech company called Apple, and it's been a very difficult year in terms of my purchases, too many temptations this year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can definitely believe that. I was well, going to say. I can say, perfectly understand that. <laughs> I think most of our biggest indulgence right now is uh, mail shipping. <laughs> Paul, yes, what about I've you? Yes, I've been doing quite a lot of that recently again. I think you are right that my biggest indulgence would probably be cooking and especially cooking for friends and making sure there's always lots of nice, good food on the table and big spreads and big groups, which of course right now is impossible. And I think a good second would be the theater. Yeah. Whenever I have a chance, I would like to go. I do like to go to to plays and concerts and 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 musicals and and wherever I am, I always try to see if there is a possibility to spend a night at the theater as well. Oh, that's so, nice. So, Paul, it must have been a terrible year, even more for you than for others, <laughs> considering those it's, indulgences. <laughs> it's been very difficult that <laughs> that I can confirm. Although I have been lucky enough to at least be at a concert with only. 30 people, that's the maximum allowed here in the Netherlands at the moment, of Baroque music in a church last Sunday. And that was really like an ointment for the soul. It was really good. An ointment um, for the soul. But enough about all this private stuff. Let's move to privacy and data protection. And Sophie, maybe maybe start with you. I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who have heard about Convention 108 and 108 Plus, but have no real idea what it is. What Can you give us some some baseline understanding. Thank you, Paul, and thank you, Kay, for inviting me to. It's a great pleasure to share the, the mic with Mike, <laughs> with Michael. So if I may go one, one level before speaking about Convention 108 yes. and 108 Plus, which is the, the, modernized, uh, the modernized instrument, to tell you where it's coming from, I work in France, in Strasbourg, for the Council of Europe. That's a regional international organization. And you hear Europe, so immediately you might think, oh, European Union, uh, GDPR, and all this. And no, um, actually a very different organization in its objectives and aims. And the identity of the organization is that it's a human rights organization. Uh, so you see me coming there with, with this focus I want to bring. The the, the first stone of this building we've been building for over 70 years in Strasbourg with this institution is the protection of people 
against state action. That was the start. That's was that's how it was envisioned, with the protection of the European Convention uh, on Human Rights. We just celebrated uh, a month ago the 70th anniversary of the instrument, and so that's already where we started with the protection of the right to privacy 70 years ago, and building on that protection, but also in light of the evolution in the societies. In the in this mid-60s already, the organization started to work on the on concerns raised by computers, data banks at the time, on the rights and freedoms of individuals. And there we started moving gradually to work on Another specific right, which in the meantime, in the four decades of its implementation, has been completely affirmed as an autonomous right, the right to data protection. And the Council of Europe, building on its European Convention on Human Rights, decided in 1981, so soon 40 years, to specifically protect the right to data protection. But there I want to highlight the title of the convention. You refer to Convention 108. The, the full title of the convention is a Convention for the Protection of Individuals with Regard to the Processing of Personal Data. The focus is protecting the people when their data, their personal data, and I think uh, it's a very important distinction to make at the moment with all the discussion on digital acts and everything and and trade. Here, the focus is on the protection of the individuals. And so this convention is a treaty that was from the start, from 40 years ago, seen as a treaty open to any country in the world. And that's really the amazing vision of its drafters that understood that this right with the evolution of technologies could no longer be uh, seen as a national matter for its enforcement or a regional matter, but that you would really need a, a common uh, playing field at global level to ensure our protection. So that's what Convention 108 is. It's protecting us when our personal data uh, are being processed. And the way the way it's working is that it's a treaty. Countries commit to it and they commit to integrate in their national legislation all the provisions of the convention. So in effect, it enables the harmonization of legislation on this topic. I'm sure we'll have lots of follow-up questions, but while we're setting the stage, Let's go to Michael and also set the stage for the OECD privacy guidelines, which, if I recall correctly, date back to around the same time as Convention 108. Yes, and thanks as well for asking me to be on the podcast and pleasure to be here with Sophie. In the same time, really, that, uh, that people were going to Strasbourg, they were also going to Paris. Maybe they were even taking the train between the two cities going uh, from the Council of Europe to the OECD and, and, and back again. I think the OECD is sort of has a more economic focus, social policy focus. So the, the chair of the group actually back in the, in, in the late 1970s, uh, Justice Michael Kirby from Australia uh, said, you know, the, you don't always expect the sober economists to be dripping with human rights sensibilities. And so why in the heck did OECD get involved in this in the privacy business, but we had been looking at the important economic benefits that come from transporter data flows in particular. And I think that was part of the motivation for our membership in having the OECD look at this, look at this issue. And it's an interesting membership. We're based in Paris 
right in the heart of Europe. And indeed, the majority of our members are European. But we also have North America, the United States and Canada and Mexico, a few South American countries, Australia, Japan, Korea. So it's quite an interesting and diverse membership. And I, and I think while our members were interested in making sure that as, as technology and mainframe computers back in the days were operated in a way that respected individuals and protected them, they were at the same time interested as well in ensuring that sort of an excessive enthusiasm for privacy regulation didn't erect undue barriers to transborder data flows and, and sort of undermine some of the benefits that the technology promised in those days. And so in 1980, the OECD then agreed on, on what are sometimes called the FIPS, the Fair Information Process Practicing Principles, our, our privacy guidelines, which are really reflected in privacy laws all around the world. And there's quite a lot of consistency between them and indeed Council of Europe Convention 108. And to the day, these are the basic principles that I think under, under that inform how we should deal with protecting individuals and their personal data. Which I particularly appreciate because when educating different companies or individuals about privacy. The FIPS are absolutely the basics of what you can teach when you teach privacy law because they're pretty consistent and sustainable globally. So how binding are your two instruments? So if you already mentioned there is some conversion into national law. Also from Michael, we heard there is some conversion into national law. But if member states, if countries state that they adhere to both the OECD guidelines and the Council of Europe Convention, do they really have to implement those international laws? What timeframes do apply? How, how does that work? It's a treaty. Convention 108 is a treaty, so it's public international law. It's countries committing under the Vienna Convention treaties to respect this international commitment. The requirement, and that's what is in the convention, is that they reflect the provisions in their national legislation. And that has to be done at the time the treaty binds them and enters into force for the country. The idea of them respecting the provisions is that uh, it creates, as I said, a harmonized group of countries that share the same understanding of what data protection is, the same definitions, the same principles applied to, to the processing, the same rights for the individuals, the same importance of the remedies. And so once this score is guaranteed in the national legislation of the countries, then they can establish a closer relationship, there can be trust, there can be reciprocity, and you can have data flowing between them because that's the objective. And Michael has highlighted that for, for the OECD guidelines. The objective is to facilitate data flows. And that's a similar objective with the convention, with this harmonization of legislation, and then, you know, really allowing data to be exported to the other parties to the convention. But that's the theory. Because what we actually see in practice, and we've noticed it, is that despite the fact that countries are making this international commitment, some of them did not respect the provisions mm. that they were committing to, which is an issue because then you can question the whole system precisely of free flow of data between the parties. And this is one of the lacunas, and I think it's the biggest lacuna of the, of the Convention 108, that we have tried to address 
with 108 plus because with 108 plus the modernized version there is a mechanism that will enable the evaluation of the compliance by the parties and it shouldn't be necessary but <laughs> we came to the reality that it's needed and i think it's a strong guarantee for for the future which I also think is fantastic because the OECD guidelines, again, just like I was saying, the FIPS is the baselines of teaching privacy and understanding privacy, especially here in the U.S. when a lot of people don't understand what privacy actually means until, of course, it directly impacts them negatively. And then they understand way too much that goes far beyond what the laws did. You said some key words here that I wrote down, and I want to make sure that we follow up on the trust, huge aspect, the exportation of data under commitments and being able to have that free flow exchange and how reality may not actually match the commitments or the dream. I'm going to say it's a dream. It's a privacy dream that we have that data can free flow and people will be protected. So if we put together the trust with the reality, as you were just saying, of some aren't following up, what are the repercussions to those who don't follow their commitments? You mentioned there might be some repercussions we can rely on, but what is the deterrent for companies to not violate the principles? Is it the loss of a global economy and the free flow of data? I mean, what's the practical implications of violating them? Yes, the practical illustration of a violation, and there I will go uh, one step further in highlighting that it's not the company that violates, but even an agreement that is supposed to to provide all the guarantees for the transfer may violate the higher principles that have been set. And it's exactly what we've seen with Schrems 2 and Schrems 1. And there you immediately see the repercussion of, of an invalid basis and, and the fact that the trust which was there was judged as a misplaced trust in the end. And the panic around now, how do we secure this trust again? And how do we ensure that those principles and those rights that we are abiding uh, to are actually respected? So I've made a parallel with what happened at the EU and uh, US level. But for us, in the context of the convention, I would say an impact. And that's what's going to happen in the future, I think, under 108 plus, if there is a conclusion at some point of non-compliance by a party, then the other parties will be able to suspend the, the data flows. That's that's the immediate basis. Another, that's the immediate impact. Another impact, because it's another, I think, added value of the convention, is that it enables cooperation between the data protection authorities, which we know today is crucial. And same thing, then it's not about economic uh, trade data flows, but then it will be really stopping the means to cooperate with your counterparts, which I think can be quite a, a serious uh, impact. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of companies recognize that. The privacy professionals have been telling them for years, yeah, the fines may be huge, but that's not the biggest concern. The biggest concern is the ability to engage in commerce which relies on personal information and what commerce doesn't rely on personal information. So, Michael, if you were listening to this as well, with no other context around it, what where would you say the practical implications are and the repercussions? Sorry, sorry the practical implications of 
which violating the principles and not standing by commitments. Yeah. So I, I think you have to look at it from two perspectives. I mean, one one is like uh, Convention 108. The privacy guidelines are agreed by governments, right? So this is this is who's taken the commitments. And in, in, uh, in the OECD's case, it's it's non-binding principles. So we don't have a court. Our members somehow hasn't even, haven't seen fit to create an army. So our enforcement mechanisms are soft ones. It's peer pressure, it's conversation, it's reports, and indeed in this area, it's it's taken a long time. I think we're now at the stage where all of our members are, are have have laws on the books. But laws on the books is not what it's all about either. And and I think that's the the guideline approach creates a, a broader framework which recognizes that you need enforcement authorities, yes, but you need privacy professionals and you need education and you need awareness in, mm-hmm. in order to really make privacy effective on the ground. So for our members, it's one thing. And indeed, I think the, the flexibility that a principles-based approach has enabled the basic principles and the guidelines to stand the test of time. Not that I think they're perfect, but it's hard still to figure out exactly how to how to improve on them <laughs> in a number of respects in so, insofar as th- that goes. I think there's lots of ways to improve on how effectively they're implemented, however, and that takes us to, I think, organizations. And one of the principles in the privacy guidelines, I think that the OECD is is rightly credited for, is the notion of accountability, which remained kind of a, a quiet provision for, for many years after 1980. But in, in 2013, we took that that notion and sort of blew it up and developed a new section on risk-based privacy management programs. How do organizations do the right thing and be seen to be doing the right thing and be willing to show that they're doing the right thing? And I think that's where a lot of work has gone in, in, in recent years. And being able to convince organizations that they should do that because it's in their interests and not just because it's a matter of compliance, I think is is one of the challenges. Right. Still, privacy enforcement has been, I think, historically not the emphasis. We're, we've been better at making principles and rules and and less good at enforcing them. That may be changing in some respects, but I think the more important point is how can organizations be shown that doing the right thing is good for the organizations uh, good for the right it's good for their customers if they have customers it's good for their members if they have members and that's really what it's all about and I, now that i've i used to be on the policy side for many years which is when i got to know sophie and, and, and paul indeed and now as as dpo i see that much more clearly having to put <laughs> make practical uh, these principles that were easy to to look at, at sitting at my desk and now need to make sure that they they work across our, our fairly diverse organization. You and know, how do you how do you like that? It's not easy. <laughs> no, making that transition isn't easy. I'm still on the policy side for a very large extent of my work, but I'm also part of the internal privacy team now at Trustart. And I Trust find me, that sometimes I struggle side. to operationalize everything that I've always advocated in practice. And not only because there are existing databases and existing software but there's also departments that have their own views on what they want to do or need to do with data and that want to uh, want to be able to advertise for upcoming webinars for example and how do you do that in a privacy friendly way so sometimes it can be a struggle do you have that same that same experience coming from the policy side where you always thought about the perfect world and now trying to construct that perfect world while you're 
actually the builder? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I was working in an international organization, so the perfect world is really not uh, the right metaphor there. (laughs) (laughs) But I wrote it down uh, already, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) But but I, I it's 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 been fascinating actually to sort of move from the from the policy to the to the practice, and I I think one thing that's that's changed is I think the amount of data that's processed at an organization since you know certainly since the late 70s when these principles were built is is changed you know in in every possible way and so the, the sheer variety of projects that i get called in to look at is 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 really amazing i mean not like any organization we have hr data about staff so of course we're doing surveys of staff about how they're doing during lockdown and working remotely and under the COVID restrictions, et cetera. But we also have, uh, we interact with our delegations. We have, we used to have conferences back in the day where we'd bring (laughs) a lot of people to the organization. Now it's all virtual. So these kinds of issues are, they need to be addressed, but they're not so hard. I think the, the real challenges come with some of the policy projects that we gather evidence for where we're surveying. We have a project called PISA where we survey the educational achievement of of 15-year-olds all around the world. And those kind of projects, we do surveys of of individuals and and how they're reacting to certain kinds of health treatments. So there's quite sensitive data there as well. And seeing the, the the variety of projects at an organization like the OECD means it's it's there's never really a dull a dull minute. I imagine not. And unfortunately when Paul made the transition over to the private world, he now has to work with me and all my theories on privacy. And what if we thought about it this way or that way? So I think that no, might I keep be telling one- you next next year, okay, next year, this year we <laughs> <laughs> our schedule is filled up. Exactly. But you but know, yeah, that's we'll, one we'll of the get there. That's one of the things that's fun about talking about privacy professionals is we can take the perspective we've been looking at today about what are the the standards we should aspire to and what are the commitments that countries or organizations are making? What are the foundational principles to build around? But when it comes down to it, Michael, and you touched on this specifically, is it's not just doing something because the law says you have to do it. Or there's something on paper that says to you have to buy into that concept. And of course, for me, I think of it like a speed limit. I mean, it's a suggestion, right? You can get stopped. You can get penalized. If you're going fast enough, you might even be arrested. But, you know, you have to buy into the concept that the speed limit is there for a reason and to govern yourselves accordingly. And do you think that we're going to get to the point where people will understand and buy into the concept that privacy and protecting individuals' privacy is something we should all be invested in. Yeah, I mean, I I think so. So part of part of this is about taking privacy or taking data protection as well, sort of out of the if I can I mix a metaphor here out of the yes you can ivory silo. <laughs> Ooh, I'm writing that one down too. <laughs> and integrating it in terms of as a basic, uh, this is a basic thing we do when we do projects is we look at the data and we decide what data we need and we decide how we're going to communicate to the people whose data it is, what we're going to do with it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so it's been 
fun as well, this change from moving from the policy side to the DPO role is to integrate myself across the organization in, in a much different way. So, of course, you know, the, the digital security office is, you know, we, we work hand in hand because that's probably the most important relationship that that there that there could be in the organization but also of course with the legal department and with the procurement people and then across all the substantive departments to convince people that this is just part of how we operate it's it's taking care of the data is essential and it it helps that i mean most of the work we do well i hope all the work we do is in the public interest so we already have that going for us we're trying to make things better. We're trying to, in the slogan of our secretary general, make better policies for better lives. And if we don't uh, treat the individuals whose data we're using to do that correctly, uh, then we're really undermining our mission. Right. Sophie, one of the things that always fascinated me about the Council of Europe Convention 108 is what you also already alluded to, is that Somebody had the vision to make it a global convention, to allow every single country in the world that wishes to accede to accede to the treaty. Where are we today? How many non-European countries or non-EU countries even are part of, of that bigger convention? And, and what does the future look like? Will we see the US exceed at some point or maybe even just California? Yes, yeah, so you, you phrased it in saying that in any country who wishes to exceed, exceeds. It's, it's true, you need the intention of the country. We're not forcing anyone to do that. But at the same time, there is quite significant criteria. That is that the country uh, needs to have a law that complies with the provisions of the convention. And so for years, we've been discussing with the U.S., but of course, as long as the U.S. doesn't have a federal law on the question, it might be tricky. We we have we are following with great interest what is happening in that front across the pond so we shall see as to the state of the global reach of the convention today because because it's it's probably the best illustration of a global standard uh, that is the as i said convention 108 dates back to 40 years ago 1981 so the organization of course um, logically first focused on its member states and ensuring that the 47 member states of the organization would adopt data protection legislation and would accede and ratify. And so it took us a bit of time to get there because some of our member states adopted data protection legislations not, not long ago, actually. But we have all 47 of them. And since about 10 years, a bit more, uh, a bit more than 10 years, there has been an active decision from the Council of Europe to really start promoting the convention outside its member states. Uh, yeah, it's, it dates back from over uh, 10 years. And we've seen gradually non-European countries exceeding. Uh, the first one was Uruguay in 2013. And now in 2020, we have in total eight non-European countries that have exceeded. So essentially African countries and Latin American countries, including big ones, Mexico, for instance. And so to date, we have 55 countries that are bound by the convention. So it's it's quite significant in, in the privacy and data protection world. If you consider that you have a, a 130 laws, I think roughly, that's the inventory of Professor Graham Greenleaf. We have 55 
in the convention and beyond just the, the parties to the convention, the committee that is established by the convention also enables observer countries to participate in the work and, you know, just contribute to this policy work that is done. And there we have another roughly 20 countries that participate under that observer status. And with those observer countries, you have all regions. You have Pacific, you have Asia, you have uh, North America. So it's quite a, a rich mix of countries. Now the question for the future, because it's your question, is will we manage to bring those countries to the step uh, one step higher, which is 108 plus, and, and make them evolve. But at the same time, I can confirm that the interest in the convention and its global reach continues. It's been, it's been stated publicly by uh, South Korea that in their search of the adequacy, they would also uh, look for accession to the convention. And so they've been undertaking the national reforms that were necessary for that uh, and are now moving in that direction. We have other African countries we're working with that are interested in accession. Same thing with other Latin American nice. countries. So it's coming. And there's just been a paper published by uh, Colin Bennett on why on why Canada should accede to Convention 1082. So, so nice prospects, I would say, for the future. Well, we'll pick up that question next week when we actually talk about the Canadian legislation and the changes that are being brought to the table yeah. there. So we'll ask our guests then what they will think about Canada's accession to Convention 108. When you mention all those countries also in relation you you said south korea is looking at adherence to convention 108 also with regard to their adequacy decision would you say that adherence to the convention would help countries establish that essentially equivalent level of data protection that that is now required for so many data transfers from europe um Yes, I, I could say it and I would say it, but I don't think it would be important. But what is more important is one of the recitals of the GDPR that tells you that in this adequacy examination that is done by, by the Commission, being a party to Convention 108 is one element that is considered. And so it's not a compulsory element, and we see it with Japan, that is the first adequate country under uh, GDPR that has been uh, considered adequate without being a party to the convention. So you see that there is no automaticity there. But something also tells me that with SHREMS 2 and the issue of ac governmental access to data, the guarantees that we have in the convention with regard to the exceptions, uh, national security, law enforcement, processing types, this is really a supplementary argument in favor of countries outside the EU wishing to or looking at towards the adequacy to come to the convention. Um, and one final word on that, also to say that one is not leading automatically to the other, but at the same time, we need to distinct them. I take the example of Argentina that had the adequacy decision already and still came for an accession to 108 because they saw something and another merit in 108 as a non-EU country and not solely this objective of the adequacy. The convention brings also other things aside from this, you know, this this step towards the, the adequacy granting of the EU. Michael, would you say that also the OECD principles will help countries move towards that essentially equivalent level of protection or do they serve a different purpose? Well, they, they certainly will help. I mean, they've already 
the OECD privacy guidelines are kind of the basis for the APEC privacy principles. So I think they they are a good basis for expanding internationally. And, and indeed, because of their sort of principle-based approach, it's a, it's a little bit easier to adapt to, to other kinds of economies, other kinds of legal systems, et cetera. There's a little more flexibility. The basics are, are should be the same across the world, but there's some more flexibility in implementation. Although I'd say that that is one of the changes since 1980 is, is sort of building in the, the key elements of the building blocks. I think we're all becoming clearer what they are and getting greater global consensus on that. So I think the the OECD principles remain quite useful. In fact, that's probably one of the most uh, important dimensions is sort of their usability across the entire world. Sophie, we've talked about 108 plus. Would you mind explaining for our listeners the plus part? Yes, the the plus part is that we took everything from yes. the 1981 instruments, the so the convention 108 and we've added uh, and topped with another layer that enhances the protection. And one one novelty I mentioned is this now this compliance check that will be done for the parties that does not exist at the moment. That's one thing. But then really in terms of substantive protection, there are plenty of novelties also in 108 plus. And there I'd like to pay tribute uh, to the OECD and give a concrete illustration of the cross-fertilization that there has been between the OECD work and, and our work in Strasbourg on this topic. And Michael mentioned the accountability principle. This is something that now is in 108 plus that you did not have in 108. So there's a brand new article, Article 10, that, that imposes the, the, the compliance and the demonstration of the compliance of, of the controllers. Other novelties address the algorithmic environment we're living in and granting new rights to the individuals. We've kept all the rights that have been existing for 40 years, rights of access, right of erasure of data, rectification, all this, you know, that appeared new with the GDPR and actually existed for a while is maintained, but we've added a right to know the reasoning of the processing, a right not to be subject to a fully automated decision without, you know, bringing in a human intervention back in the system. So those are the new challenges that we've tried to, to respond to. We've reinforced some of the features of the 108 uh, text regarding the transparency and the process the principles applying to the processing, for instance, the proportionality is much clearer now in, in the text, the need for the proportionality. And finally, the last big, the last big important adding is the essential of data protection authorities and the, the basis for their international cooperation. And this, I must say, was absolutely not foreseen in the 1981 instrument. If you look at Convention 108, you don't see a reference to any data protection authority. It came later with an additional protocol, but unfortunately, an additional protocol is an addition to which not all our parties uh, have actually committed to. So with 108 Plus, we've made sure that there is a single regime and that data protection authorities, and when I say data protection authorities, I mean it with the criteria of uh, independence that we all, we all know and functional independence, that this is really part of the national data protection system. And this is key. This is key because for some regions of the world, this is uh, nothing new. 
But when we work as we're working now with countries that do not have any data protection legislation, it's important for us to have a tool that reflects the fact that this is really a a cornerstone you can't avoid in a national data protection system, having a strong enforcement uh, of, of the law. Sorry, sorry, I, I took maybe a bit long, but it reflects seven years of work oh, that's no. passing from 108 to 108 plus. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's something that I think our listeners are are very interested in making sure that they understand what that plus means. So thank you very much. And Paul, I, I know you have a question burning, but I just got to ask. You yeah, I to... do. In in reverse. Michael, I wasn't going to let you ask it. Now. Oh, okay. Then go ahead. <laughs> I'm teasing. Go ahead, Paul. <laughs> no, I was just wondering in reverse if the ongoing review at the OECD is being inspired now by the work of the Council of Europe. Well, of course, of course, we haven't we haven't learned quite from the the branding skill that I think Council of Europe has shown in naming it 108 plus. Oh. So there's, but I think the the, the dialogue uh, from from Paris to to Strasbourg is 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 quite easy. In fact, so I, I think everybody everybody's sort of picking up on points from from everybody else these days as we as we strengthen and and make our regimes more fit for purpose. We do actually have, so the so the privacy guidelines were revised in 2013, and now are we're examining that revision again as part of a process. That's still underway, so I don't really know exactly uh, where it will end up. I think some of the issues that they've been looking at in this context, not surprisingly, include government access to commercial data. That's uh, obviously quite quite topical these days, data localization, uh, data breach notification reporting, data ethics, and AI. We actually have a new council recommendation on artificial intelligence as well, so that uh, plays together with the privacy guidelines dealing with some of the issues that Sophie's already mentioned. Uh, so that that review is underway. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm not leading that work, fortunately, and I'm a little bit at a distance from it, but I, I would be surprised that it results in changes to the fundamental principles, which I think that is, but again, that's not necessarily to say that they that they all work perfectly. I think more and more, they were designed for a world uh, where sort of data was provided directly from the individuals to the organization. I think that's where they work best. But in the world we live in with more and more data being observed about us, not necessarily with our participation or even inferred about us based on the data we've given or not given or it's, that's been observed. I think that data at a distance makes it much more challenging to implement the basic principles in ways that truly protect individuals. And I think those are some of the challenges that, that we all have to look at uh, moving ahead. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. The question I was going to ask is, and we've danced around it, and Sophie, I think you said earlier that it's going to depend on the U.S. passing a federal law. Do you see hopes in the results of the election in the U.S.? Yes. <laughs> I cannot hide my optimism. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Yes. None of us can, really. <laughs> yes. And, and this... Uh, I, I already see, see this having impacts. I mean, we have there is an U.S. representation because the U.S. are one of the observer states in the Council of Europe. So there is a, there is an embassy, there is a consulate general that follows the work, and and 
The U.S. has been absent from the work of the committee for a number of years now, while it had actually been quite present and active in our meetings when we were modernizing the convention. Then there's been a gap. And now we again have contacts with the Consul General and interest in that work. So I can see a change already in our relationship in the work of the committee coming for next year. And, nice. And That's good to hear. Yes, yes, it's great. And and I would imagine that nationally and domestically, of course, the the, the this changes the the way things are are, are going to be handled. That's good to hear. Really good. And I'm looking at the time. And when we invited you on here today, was there anything in particular you wanted to make sure that you shared with the audience that we don't leave the show until you have the opportunity to say that? Who starts? It should be Michael, because I've always started. <laughs> you go first, Sophie. Can I go? Can I, because because yes. we're we're addressing privacy pros and so and and many of your questions, Kay, were from the perspective of companies and Yes. What the work I'm doing and the convention may seem very distant actually to those privacy pros in their in their daily practice in in the compliance they have to they have to deliver but only really to conclude to highlight the importance of those international instruments that in the long term, if we continue to have more countries buying in the convention and adopting legislation, it will in the end facilitate your work. For instance, with regard to transborder data flows. And so only to invite you to have an interest in the convention, push for it. If you have contacts internationally for other countries to accede to it, because ultimately it's going to facilitate your work in the end. So that that, that would be my concluded remark. And, uh, and thank you again for having me today. Oh, I like that very much. Anything to add, Michael? Oh, well, may, maybe if I put back on my... DPO hat for a moment here and and say, I think the, the attention to SHREMS 2 and GDPR and data transfers has been huge, of course, in the privacy community. One aspect that's not well known, and since you're talking to two international organizations today, I, I'll mention, is that while GDPR largely brought in the same basic transfer framework from the 95 Directive, one important change was that it explicitly added international organizations as third countries for the purposes of transfer. So if you transfer to the Council of Europe or to the OECD or to any other UN body, that's like transferring data to a third country. And for those of us working to make sure that our programs have the data we need to make the policies that, that people want, it's really posed challenges that I think are not getting much attention. And, and, and it's, it's difficult in part because of our international character, which means we tend to comply with our own rules and not we're not subject directly, for example, example, to GDPR. But but our members, of course, are some of them subject to GDPR and many partners we work on. And it, it's really an ongoing challenge for international organizations to make sure that we can continue to get the data that we need uh, to do the work that we do. I love it. Well, thank you both very much for joining us today. This was a this was a pleasure. And as, as I hoped, it was like catching up at a conference, but at the same time, making sure that we um, educate everybody around the world on the important work that both yes. your organizations are doing. So thank you again. And to our listeners, if you like our series, please do tell your friends and family about us. 
rate and review us in your podcast application if you can. And should you have any questions or suggestions, please reach out to us via seriousprivacy at trustart.com or via Twitter at, at podcast privacy. You will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as EuroPolB. Thank you again for listening to Serious Privacy and until our next Bye. episode. Goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions.